This is the Emergency Medical Minute, sponsored by Mile High Ambulance. The Emergency Medical Minute is excited to announce that we are now offering AMA, PRA, Category 1 credits. This is accessible through our online course modules that can be accessed at www.emergencymedicalminute.org backslash CME-courses, or simply by clicking on the link in our show notes and creating an account. All right, so I've done a few topics lately on neuromuscular weakness, so what happens at kind of where, where the nerve meets the muscle or the neuromuscular junction, and weaknesses that can come from that. So myasthenia gravis is one, Guillain-Barre syndrome is one, but botulism is what I was going to talk about today. It's something we don't really see often, but it's one of those ones that like is very important to be aware of because when we see it, the initial diagnosis is all clinical. Any confirmatory test is going to take at least five days to come back. And so it's one of those ones that you really do need to make a prompt diagnosis and treat appropriately because you could uh, really kind of affect some downstream things uh, with that, including some very, very long paralysis. So we'll kind of talk quick about it. When we hear botulism, what's like the one food or ingestion we think about all the time? Honey, Honey right? And it's like a vast minority of cases are actually from honey. What's Whale it? Blubber. Whale blubber. That's actually a good one too. I heard a case that was in the Arctic Circle somewhere, Alaska or something. But yeah, basically it's like up in these rural hospitals, they actually stock the toxin. Whereas here, I think it's controlled at the state health department level. Don't quote me on that exact, but I, I know it's not like every hospital is going to have it. But in these populations where they have whale blubber or other kind of like stored fermented foods, there's a much higher incidence of it. And so it's like 50 per 100,000 instead of like the much, much more rare incidence that we have kind of in our um, society down here. So whale blubber, honey, Honey is the one that we always like think about, but it is a vast, vast minority of cases. But because it is one of those things, especially for infantile botulism, it's one of those things that you can like actually affect and kind of help out with. And so I think that's why there's like that big public education push of not giving infants honey. The reason, you know, that it's kind of good to be aware of is there's other ones like canned food, so the whale blubber, but also any canned food, if it's not stored properly, can be an issue as well. So what happens is the uh, bacteria that forms this toxin is kind of everywhere. It's all over fruits and vegetables and food, and so it's everywhere, but it does get destroyed with heat, and so it takes 120 degrees Celsius. So, you know, in the process of canning, if the temperature doesn't get high enough, or if there's enough air or other kind of things where it doesn't quite get killed, it can sit in this kind of warm, moist environment in a canned good and then kind of go from there. With whale blubber or other things, historically a lot of the uh, local cultures that do that will actually kind of like put the whale parts inside an animal sack and bury it underground and it's cold enough that it's actually usually okay. There's actually, I think, more incidents when people <laughs> try to do it in their house in kind of a canned process rather than under that kind of cold surface in the Arctic floor. So anyway, you know, kind of just interesting side note that will probably hopefully not affect us in Colorado very often, but who knows with supply chain stuff. So as far as uh, it does need an alkaline environment and 25 to 37 degrees is kind of the prime conditions for the spore to germinate and then release the toxin. Most cases are kind of um, like what we talked about already, but some other ones to be aware of prison populations. So pruno hooch, it's fermenting of fruit and sugar in a prison toilet can also uh, breed botulism. Home fermentation of tofu and bean products, that's more uh, Asian influence, but definitely here in the U.S. as well. And then uh, the ones we don't think about as often are wound infections. So particularly IV drug users with nasty wound infections can get botulism from those. And then um, the one that I've always wanted to see, truthfully, but I haven't, is the home Botox party. And, you know, somebody kind of gives themselves way too much. It is such a potent, potent toxin that it really doesn't take much. And so there's been some cases reported where people are doing these home Botox parties and gave themselves, I think the record I saw was, 2,857 times the lethal dose. 
So it doesn't take much if you don't know what you're doing to kind of just inject yourself a little bit too much. And I think the last thing to mention is it is a bioterrorism threat. There's been some attempts in the past. It's never really been successful on a wide scale, but it is something that could potentially be, be put out there and hailed and then cause some uh, other issues with that. So it's kind of always on the watch. And uh, for that reason, the uh, Department of Defense and FEMA and other people stock their own kind of antitoxin that's not the same one that we have. Uh, what happens is the toxin blocks the release of acetylcholine from the nerve side at that neuromuscular junction. So then it can't release the neurotransmitter, so then can't potentiate any action potentials in the muscle or cause any contraction. And hence why you could use it to get rid of wrinkles, but also cause very life-threatening paralysis. Just a few key features. If you think of Guillain-Barre syndrome, which we see a little bit more commonly, it's almost the opposite. It's going to be a descending paralysis. It's going to often start with ocular bulbar muscles. They might have some ptosis, might have some diplopia just because the extraocular muscles are not intact. But pupils really shouldn't be a mainstay of thing, but they still can be affected. And then there may be some anticholinergic symptoms as well. So the kind of dry, hot, urinary retention, other features with that. If it's ingested, they might have some nausea, vomiting, but that's so nonspecific. It's not the thing to hang on, but they should maintain a normal mental status. So even though they have neurologic features, they should still be able to be alert oriented and uh, coherent to what's going on. With infantile botulism, the thing that's interesting with that is they actually ingest spores, but then because the baby's GI tract is more alkaline, it actually can't kill those spores. And so then they germinate in that warm alkaline environment and then release the toxin kind of in vivo. So with infantile botulism, it's actually they could ingest it and then symptoms don't show up for a week or two. And so something to be aware of as well. But then we have the poor feeding, constipation. We've all seen babies like that. But then there's that definite, you know, you pull them up, their neck just flops back, kind of that floppy baby syndrome that's described. Lethargy, weak cry, or just kind of a pitiful kind of appearance is kind of uh, the mainstay of what, what those infants look like. There was another interesting case as well that was, you know, this wasn't one of mine, but one that I'd heard on a lecture where, it was kind of this very homeopathic mother with all her supplements and all these kind of things brought their child in and ultimately diagnosed with botulism. And they thought for sure it was going to be some kind of honey-containing product or anything like that. And in the end, it was actually the home was getting renovated. And in the course of the, redoing the driveway, it kicked up a lot of dust, a lot of that toxin, and then inhaled in this baby. So a lot of times the things maybe you don't necessarily think of. Um, as we talked about, you can test for the toxin, and that can come from serum, wound cultures, stool samples. Um, but it does take you know, a number of days to come back, and so it really is a clinical diagnosis. There's an antitoxin, particularly for if they're under a year old. It's kind of the baby uh, BIG, but it's, it's something that you can give to block any further release and hopefully inactivate any circulating toxin. It won't reverse any of the effects that are already in place. That's why giving prompt treatment makes a difference. Because once the paralysis is set in, any guesses how long it takes to reverse? Months, exactly right. So if somebody gets like a full-blown case, very you know, paralyzed, ends up on a ventilator, they're probably going to be on a ventilator for months. And then there's going to be all the downstream effects of nosocomial infections and bed sores and, and everything like that. So you can't get them through it. It's just it's going to take a long, long time with that. So the sooner you can give it, the sooner you can block any further effects from happening. And uh, then for over 12-year-olds, there's a different you know, antitoxin that we have that's uh, equine serum botulism antitoxin. So anyways, with that, I think that's kind of the mainstays of the diagnosis and treatment, not that we see often, but again, something that is critically important if we see it. So thank you. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Health One Continental Division and Swedish Medical Center for their financial contributions to the EMM. Donations from them and listeners like you make it possible for us to fulfill our mission of producing and spreading free medical education to the masses. If you enjoy our show, please consider making a one-time or reoccurring donation to help cover our operational costs and keep the EMM awesome. 
Click on the link in our show notes to make a donation. Thank you for listening.